Mighty Ape is Australia's entertainment and pop culture superstore. With everything from movies, music, games, toys, books, hobbies and more, Mighty Ape is your one-stop shop for the things that matter most. They constantly have hot deals and exclusive promos. And if you visit their website on the click-through banner on fakechef.net's homepage, then your purchase will help support Good Movie Monday. Mighty Ape, Australia's entertainment and pop culture superstore. Good morning. Good morning. that it is a good morning whether I want it or not. Please go away, let me speak for the love of God! I think we're kicking things off pretty strong here, mate. Just uh, jumping straight into today's theme, if you're cool with that. I'm more than cool with that. We're talking about chiller thrillers, and that that's to mean sort of, um, I guess we're talking about thriller movies that are set in a winter landscape. Okay. <laughs> I thought that was I thought that was pretty obvious by winter chillers, but, uh, you know, sure. No, chiller thrillers. Chiller thrillers. Chiller thrillers. I mean, all, all the films I'm talking about, horror films, there's no... Th- I, I don't know if any of them can, could be counted as thrillers. Yeah, well, we're always very liberal on this show, aren't we? Yeah. <laughs> And the music is uh, the music is from Megan Fox's new film Till Death, and the reason that we've chosen that is because we have an interview with the director of that film on today's show. But what what's your season of choice, mate? Are you a summer guy? You a winter guy? Um, look, I'd probably say I was yeah more autumn winter. I figure you can always put more clothes on. There's only a certain amount of clothes you can take off. That's what I was gonna say. I I definitely am a winter guy. I I spent several years in Canada. I do love the snow. I love that snap freeze on your face when you step outside and suddenly your eyelids are frozen open. <laughs> but I prefer to layer up, you know, as opposed to stripping off. And you know, I'm sure everybody's grateful for that. Yeah. If you're, if you're like me and you carry a bit of a bit extra, then uh, no one is served by... <laughs> Let's face it, we've both got the body mass for winter. <laughs> That's right. I, I, that, I remember that the, in that very first season of Survivor and the guy who eventually won was like looking at all of the buff <laughs> you know, men and women just go, these guys are crazy. Like, got no, zero excess fat to survive <laughs> harsh conditions. Well, if I'm ever trapped in a, in a um, Arctic tundra and I die first, like, feel free to feast, mate. You know it. <laughs> but the, the music is Walter Mayer, as I said, from the soundtrack to, uh, to Till Death. So stick around because we do have that interview with SK Dale coming up. I like to call him Scott. Scott. Yes. Is that what the S stands for? Yeah. It'd be good if it'd be, I mean, if it stood for Sam, it'd be quite stupid of you calling him Scott. Or that, like that sort of thing you do in the interview, like, hey, I'm going to call you, I'm going to call you Jim. But my name is uh, Sam. Don't care. Jim it is. <laughs> well, stick around because will I or won't I call him <laughs> that? The wrong name. <laughs> but you have press play on Good Movie Monday. This is the weekly podcast presented by FakeShemp.net. We like to say home of the nerdy cinematic ramblings. That's kind of what this show's become. It's, it's the home of nerdy cinematic drivel. I was going to say, it's definitely ramblings. It's 100%. <laughs> My name is Glenn Cochran. I'm the host who's probably best enjoyed medium rare with a fresh brew of melted snow and pine needles. And uh, your co-host is the ever-reliable Ben Howig, who knows how to spell his own name in the snow. Hey, Ben, how are you? Yeah. I can spell it on, on multiple things. <laughs> can I write it in the snow? I don't know. <laughs> Depends on how much, how much Pepsi I've been drinking beforehand. 
this week's theme, as I said, chiller thrillers. This one was a lot easier to prep for than last week's. Yeah, there's a, a lot more to choose from. <laughs> no shortage of wintry thrillers out there. Spoiled for choice. But um, let's take a moment, if we can, uh, to promote ourselves and some of the stuff we do. Because obviously we, um, we drop this show every single Monday morning. Newcomers to the show probably don't know much about us. So I'm going to just give you a little bit of a rundown. We like to keep the mojo going on our social media pages throughout the week. We do have Facebook accounts and YouTube and Instagram and all that. So uh, not only do we upload video versions of most of the interviews that you hear on this show, but we also record exclusive videos of ourselves talking about movies and bantering and all that kind of stuff. Uh, I'm, I'm particularly excited about a, a new uh, video we do on a Wednesday night, which is uh, kind of, I don't know, it's, um, it's, a, it's a show of its own. It's, it's called Up Late. I record it with Chloe, who's new to the show, and we stay up drinking coffee and talking about movies. But it's 30 minutes long. It's quite fun. Check that out. And if you're wondering what kind of interviews we have on the show, backtrack through some episodes and you can hear celebrity interviews with people like David Zucker, Neil Marshall, Rofty here, Roger Ward, Dan Ewing, Mick Garris, Chad Michael Collins. Should I go on? No, please don't. Nathan Phillips, Clayton Jacobson. And much more. <laughs> and much more. I'm just, I'm glad you managed to pronounce all those names correctly. <laughs> yes, I rarely do so. But there are Especially also... Nathan <laughs> Flips. There are also audio interviews with Robert Duvall and Richard Stanley and Michael Mann and Mila Jovovich. So, not to gloat, but it's all good stuff, mate. That's a, you've interviewed a <laughs> lot of people. And uh, so, yeah, we don't often talk ourselves up on the show, but, you know, every once in a while we've got a spruik. So, that's what I'm doing right now. Spruikin'. And, of course, you can visit us on goodmoviemonday.com and do a deep dive into everything we do. One guy who's been on this show every single week since the first episode, in fact, he hosted three previous podcasts of ours, is Jared Garn, who works over at Monster Pictures. So let's take a listen to what he's got to say this week and what cool shit is coming out on DVD, Blu-ray, and 4K. Heaps. Hey, this is Jared, and welcome to PE Class. Now, there's no time for news this week. It's too hectic a release schedule, so I'm going to jump right into it. So coming out from Defiant Screen Entertainment is Till Death. This one stars Megan Fox. It's hitting Blu-ray and DVD. It's what Glenn may dub a chiller thriller, but the rest of us probably call a survival thriller. It also stars Ian Macken, who is not only an actor, but he's actually a director as well. He didn't direct this, but he's directed a film we played at MonsterFest 2013, and I know it's one of Simon Harcourt's favourite features, a little film called The Inside. And in fact, Ian's got a brand new film he's directed that's hitting home entertainment this week, Curtis of Defiant, and that title is Here Are The Young Men. Now, if you like Anna Taylor-Joy, she's in this movie, but if you also enjoy being bored out of your fucking brain, you may like this movie also. Then Imprint Films, they've got a genre-heavy focus this month, and their releases are streeting this week. First up, we've got The Awakening that's directed by Mike Nell, you know, from Four Weddings and a Funeral. Well, this is back in 1980 when he was directing a mummy horror film with Charlton Heston. And it's Charlton Heston's only horror film that he actually ever made, funnily enough. I love this movie. It's a childhood favourite, so it's great that Imprint are putting it out on Blu-ray and doing it justice, as this release actually trumps the US release. The US release has the same restoration but has no special features. Imprint to the rescue, they've got a commentary, two featurettes as well as that stunning new restoration. So in my opinion, that's a 
definite must-have. Also coming out from Imprint is the Brotherhood Estate, and it's got a brand new 2K restoration audio commentary and featurette. And lastly, Haunted with Aiden Quinn and Kate and Beckinsale. It's getting the blue from Imprint, and it's got four brand new featurettes, as well as an archival EPK and trailer. Then moving on to Roadshow. Roadshow's key release this week is a Warner title. It's a classic Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. It's making its 4K debut. However, the only way to get it is in a ridiculously overpriced edition that they've dubbed the collectible 4K edition. This thing's retailing for $80, and aside from the 4K disc and Blu-ray, all the added other fluff is fun, but is it really worth an extra 60 bucks? Because let's face it, you're probably going to be paying 20 maybe $25 for Willy Wonka on 4K, as with the rest of the Warner catalogue that have been released of late, like back catalogue titles like Full Metal Jacket and whatnot. Uh, yeah, so what is this collectible fluff they've included? Well, there's a replica poster, some art cards, a 32-page booklet, a replica golden uh, ticket, and, well, I guess collectible box set packaging. Look, I'd hold off and wait for a standard release, or alternatively, even import it from the US or UK, because it's quite affordable to get through Amazon Australia. I've got the UK edition, and I can say the transfer on the film and restoration is stunning. The colours pop. The detail is there. Unfortunately, it just recycles the same audio uh, track from the Blu-ray release, which was a DTS HD Master Audio 5.1 track. So there's no Atmos or DTSX, but look, the existing track is pretty damn good enough as it stands. As for special features, it is all the same special features as on the previous Blu-ray. No new content there. Then moving on to Umbrella. Umbrella are finally releasing Natalie Erica James's Relic. Now this film premiered at Sundance 2020 and it's finally making its way to home entertainment locally. It is a little late but that's because the film was due to be released theatrically during the pandemic and then ultimately Umbrella did a deal with Stan and it went to Stan as a Stan original for 12 months so now it's finally coming out on home entertainment and I can say it was worth the wait as Umbrella are releasing a Blu-ray and DVD and the Blu-ray release comes complete with interviews with cast and crew, as well as one of Natalie's short films and some more special features. Also coming out from Umbrella is the Aussie slasher Nightmares. It's getting a Blu-ray and it's part of Umbrella's Ausploitation Classics line. It's complete with a brand new 4K restoration, archival special features, and newly added extended interviews from Mark Hartley's Not Quite Hollywood. Last one I'll touch on from Umbrella is Nadia Tass's Malcolm. It's making its Blu-ray debut with a brand new 4K restoration and an abundance of special features. Porting over all the existing special features from the DVD but adding material including an interview with David Parker that was actually produced by filmmaking guru Mark Bacatus along with an NFSA featurette on the Malcolm car and a then and now featurette on locations from the film. Lastly, Universal Sony Pictures Home Entertainment are releasing Peter Rabbit to The Runaway on 4K UHD, Blu-ray and DVD. And they're also releasing that Lord of the Flies in Space movie Voyages. However, it's only coming out on Blu-ray and DVD. They're not doing the 4K locally like Lionsgate did in the US, unfortunately. Anyway, that's it for me for this week. Until next time, stay physical. Thank you, Jarrett. How exciting. Like, Malcolm is finally on Blu-ray. Yeah. Oh, I'm very excited. The question is, does this uh, does this Blu-ray release have the theatrical version with the sex scene in it? 
the sex scene between John Hargreaves and uh, I can't remember who the who his girlfriend is in it. Mm, but they removed that for a lot of the home entertainment releases. Really? Because it was without that scene, it's a PG movie, so it's obviously a bigger bigger market for it. But um, because it's like it's similar to the Rain Man scene, isn't it? Where he walks in on Tom Cruise and Valerie Grillina having sex, and he starts <laughs> making the noises with them. Like doesn't doesn't Malcolm kind of perv on them having oh, sex? In yeah, the I scene? think so. I think he's just sort of lingering in the background like, like a like, creep. He's, he's doesn't really know what they're doing. <laughs> well, I can't wait for that bad boy, man. And bring on the big steal. That's I can't wait for yeah. that one. To, uh, nuttiest moment. <laughs> yeah, what a what a great film. Absolutely, and thank you, Jarrett. Much appreciated, mate. So let us do what we do best. Uh, time to recommend some movies, Ben. Um, Winter Chillers. I had a huge list of candidates for this one, including Windchill with Emily Blunt. Mm-hmm. That was a good one. Adam Green's Frozen. Yeah. These days you have to you have to preface that by saying Adam Green's Frozen. <laughs> yeah. Is that uh, that pesky Elsa? <laughs> and I discovered one last week. Um, a Canadian film called Black Mountain Side, which I almost chose for this episode, but um. Opted for something else, but that's a really good one too. Instead, I've gone for a 2008 film called Trans-Siberian. Have you heard of this one? I have, This yes. was directed by Brad Anderson, who at that point in time was sort of one of the most exciting up-and-coming directors on the scene. Like, I was really invested in him. Cursed he... with a very generic name, though. <laughs> that's it's right. very hard to make a career when you're just like, Brad Anderson. Is that a... Oh, you mean the guy from high school? <laughs> oh, no. He still managed to sort of... You know, that name was synonymous with the first three films he did because he did Session 9, he did The Machinist, and then he did Trans-Siberian. Uh, at the time, I think he was coming up with the likes of Fincher and Vincenzo Natale. Interestingly, Natale kind of sort of <laughs> bowed out of the, yeah. the auteur scene as well. But anyway, this is a great film. It's a hard one to explain, but it does star Woody Harrelson and Emily Mortimer. And it's a mystery thriller, I guess, uh, about a married couple on a train travelling from Beijing to Moscow. And they befriend another couple on the train. Um, and then what happens is the other husband misses the train at one of their layovers. And that then sets the scene for sort of intrigue and mystery because did he deliberately miss the train? Did he not uh, enter sort of a drug smuggle kind of story? And then there's torture and murder. And like I said, can't explain this one. It's really tricky and convoluted. But this movie for me is all about the tone. Mm. You know, it, it's the epitome of cold. You feel cold watching it. And it's really sort of like a hard-edged Agatha Christie kind of movie. I love it. The supporting cast includes Ben Kingsley and Kate Mara, who was really new at the time because this is two thousand and eight. I didn't think she'd been around for that long. I mean, she was in she was in a pretty kind of like a controversial kind of bit in in uh, Nip Tuck. She'd done a lot of TV at that point, right? She'd been in that. She'd like she'd be, she'd been like part of the threesome in Nip Tuck. Okay, I think right at the start, and she was in. Um, she was in Everwood where she was having an affair with a teacher and stuff <laughs> like some really kind of, so she was kind of coming up in TV, but we didn't know at the time that, you know, she was a bazillionaire. Yeah. You know, she's just like, oh, who's this? Like she's popping up in everything. Like, man, so <laughs> Dad's paying for it all. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Maybe not. I mean, that's, that's an unfair, that's an unfair thing. And it also, it also has um, Thomas Kretschmann, who's the German actor from like Downfall and the Pianist. And he's always good. Yeah, he was. This is probably the first thing I really recognised him from. You know, I'd seen those other films, but this is the one that sort of stuck with me. Anyway, like I said, it feels cold. But Anderson, like, I just wish this guy had really, you know, done a David Fincher and stuck to that kind of trajectory. Now he does a lot of television and things like that. He has made other films. He did make um, The Call with Halle Berry. 
which oh, was yeah. I didn't see that. I'd never watched it. It's a very good film, but the finale lets it down, type of thing. Yeah. Like you know, it's very Brad Anderson up until a point. Um, he did Beirut, which was a really disappointing one with John Hamm yeah. and one called Fractured, which I haven't seen yet. But he describes Trans Siberian as uh, a cross between Strangers on a Train, Lady Vanishes, and Runaway Train meets Dead Calm. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> yeah. So put all of those into a blender and you got Trans-Siberian. Anyway, that's that's my first one. That's your one. Well, my first one uh, is, which we could have actually talked about uh, a couple of weeks ago, is uh, 2007's 30 Days of Night. Oh, yes. Uh, which is uh, directed by David Slade. It's his kind of follow-up to uh, 2005's Hard Candy, which mm-hmm. is, I think, his kind of first big, big outing as a director. And this movie is based on a comic book series of the same name. It's a mini series, mm. but there was like 15 of yep. them <laughs> or something like that. Um, written by Steve Niles and illustrated by an Aussie, funnily enough, Ben Templesmith. And Steve Niles actually wrote, well, it's, this is another one of those things. There's three, <laughs> there's three screenwriters on this film. Steve Niles is one of them. And from what I from what I understand, he was he did the first draft, and then they gave it to the other guys to polish. Um, Stuart Beatty, who wrote Collateral for Michael Mann and yep. um, stuff, he did a, he had a go, and then Brian Nelson, who wrote Hard Candy, also mm. had a bit of a polish. It's a it's a great film. I'm sure I'm sure everyone's heard of it, but just in case you haven't, it is a film set in a small town in Alaska who has it's daylight twenty four hours a day for eleven months of the year, and then one month. It's night the whole time. And of course, this is the perfect <laughs> uh, kind of, this becomes a perfect hunting ground for a pack of vampires. Yep. In this case, the vampires are uh, led by Danny Houston, uh-huh. who Jarrett and I saw in a coffee shop in America. Amazing. Yeah, it's our, uh, that was our celebrity sighting on that trip. And we're like, oh, Danny Houston. I actually think this is his best performance. And he doesn't speak a word no, of English. Exactly. In it. He just like kind of grunts and stuff. I don't know if I can... Th- I can't think of a more menacing vampire. Yeah. And that is... The the beauty of this film like really is that is that they are 100% predator mm-hmm. and they look at, at us as food the, yep. with the same kind of... I mean, they do revel in, in pain and misery a bit more than you would hope humans working in an abattoir do. <laughs> uh, but that's just what it's like. They don't... Pe- you know, women, children... Animals, doesn't matter. It's food for them. Yep. And it has some phenomenal cinematography in this film. Like some of the, the kind of the town massacre scene. And it is like, admittedly, like it, the town isn't as full as it could be because most people leave for that month of, of night. Yep. So the town is relatively sparsely populated. But you do, that, that does lead to these like, there's probably about 15 vampires and you get to see them like these great aerial shots of them slaughtering people from the town. And it's like, it's like you're playing postal. Well, the, the, the lack of people in town makes it a hunt. Like, yeah, you know, totally. And you know, there is, there are scenes where they're, they're hiding in houses, hiding in attics and stuff like that. And uh, you know, for days with no food and no water trying to, yep. trying to survive. It is a, it is a, a great movie. It's got a great cast. Uh, what's his name is the, is the lead Josh Hartnett, mm-hmm. who you would have thought is a bit young, to play this kind of role, but he does it really well. Uh, Melissa George plays his kind of estranged wife and they're both cops. Yep. And the kind of leaders of this town, Mark Boone Jr. Pops up always good. And he's like perfect in this role as a kind of, um, kind of hermit, grumpy old hermit type character. Uh, Ben Foster is great as the, it's the, like 
Prior to prior to this too, it, it took me a while to figure out who it was. But the only thing I'd seen Ben Foster in was Big Trouble <laughs> with Tim Allen, where he's like just the <laughs> kind of goofy kid. Yeah. And in this, like, he is super creepy as a kind of human, like, slave. He wants to become a vampire, so he's kind of serving them, you know, under the under the hopes of being turned. Yep. And he is like his introduction in the film is. Like a lot, it's actually a lot creepier and a lot scarier than the actual vampires. Mm. It's really, it's really good. But it, it is a great movie. If you haven't seen it, definitely worth checking. And out. it does have a direct to DVD sequel. It does, and it had a weird web series sequel as well, where they did ten episodes, like ten ten minute episodes, I think it was. Right, and then whatever distributor at the time put it out, whacked it onto DVD as a movie. Right, yeah. So there's sort of two sequels. I've only to it. seen, I've, I have seen the second film yep i wasn't a, as big a fan no, of, of course it. not because it, it takes it away from the alaskan kind of environment which is yeah. the whole appeal of the film you know i reckon david slater had to be one of the most miserable looking people i've ever seen like <laughs> i've never seen that guy smile does he have a personality i've never read any, i've never like seen him talk he or... must have a sense of humor because he made two twilight movies yeah well i mean that's a paycheck though yeah that's sure. true <laughs> just a ching oh dear anyway uh gamo What's happening, everybody? It's Guillermo here again from ScreenRealm.com, Australia's favorite entertainment website covering all things movies and television. Let's talk a little bit about what we've covered in the past week, kicking off with Scarlett Johansson suing Disney. That's right, the Black Widow star is suing Disney, claiming that her contract was breached when they released the Black Widow on Disney Plus at the same time as cinemas. As reported by Deadline, the lawsuit claims that the simultaneous theatrical and streaming release of the Black Widow movie was primarily to grow the streamer's subscriber base and boost the stock price and in turn it cost the film what it could have possibly maybe have made. The main issue you see is that Scarlett Johansson made a deal with Marvel that at least part of her salary was conditional on the film's box office performance and that the film would be in fact released exclusively in cinemas. The suit reads, Disney intentionally induced Marvel's breach of the agreement without justification in order to prevent Ms. Johansson from realizing the full benefit of her bargain with Marvel. Disney has snapped back issuing their own official statement in response to the suit calling it sad and distressing in its callous disregard for the horrific and prolonged global effects of the COVID-19 pandemic. The company said they had fully complied with Mr. Hansen's contract and furthermore the release of Black Widow on Disney Plus to Premier Access and I quote has significantly enhanced her ability to earn additional compensation on top of the 20 million she has received to date. So they made sure to uh, let everyone know that she did make 20 million bucks from this. Keep you up to date what happens here. From Marvel unhappiness over to DC unhappiness with director David Ayer once again expressing anger with what Warner Brothers allegedly did with his 2016 film Suicide Squad. He has said similar things before but he has again taken a Twitter to expand on it saying I put my life into Suicide Squad, I made something amazing, my cut is intricate and emotional journey with some bad people who are shit on and discarded, a theme that resonates in my soul, the studio cut is not my movie, read that again. He also adds, by the way, that his cut doesn't have a single radio song in the whole thing. David Ayer, whose credits include writing Training Day and directing Brad Pitt war film Fury, has made the comments as James Gunn's The Suicide Squad makes its way into cinemas. In regards to Gunn's film, Ayer has given his support. He said, I'm so proud of James and excited for the success that's coming. I support WB and am thrilled the franchise is getting the legs it needs. I'm rooting for everyone, the cast, the crew, 
every movie is a miracle. And how do you like these apples? In an interesting bit of a factoid, Matt Damon has revealed that he auditioned for Robin twice. That's right, in an interview on the Happy Sad Confused podcast, Matt Damon revealed that he had in fact auditioned for the DC character that is Robin twice. Once for Tim Burton's 1989 Batman and once for Joel Schumacher's 1995 Batman Forever. Of Tim Burton's 1989 Batman film, Damon said, we went down to New York 1987, maybe 87, 88, I would have been 16 or 17. Of course Robin never ended up in that Batman film, that role was ultimately cut and as for Schumacher's film, Damon said Chris O'Donnell already had the part, but they were haggling over money. The studio was flexing basically by flying in two other people to screen test, they wanted Chris but they just wanted him for a price. I remember at that stage in my career you would go in and read even if you knew you weren't going to get the part. That about does it for me guys, go to ScreenRealm.com for all your latest movie news, TV news, trailers, all that jazz. We've also got your latest streaming schedules, Netflix, Stan, Amazon Prime, etc. Thanks so much for having me. Until next week, I'm out of here. Oh, you see what it does to people? I make no apologies for that.
Why isn't that like a TikTok sensation? <laughs> People are either going to fucking love that song or hate that song, but one thing for sure is they're going to have it in their heads for the next day or two. Yeah, it's gonna, they're going <laughs> to... You start off liking it, and then you hate it, <laughs> and then you come back to liking it again. Well, you know, popcorn goes with movies perfectly, and that was Popcorn by Hot Butter. <laughs> <laughs> As featured in several movies, um, but for the sake of today's show, that was taken from the soundtrack to The Snowman. Uh, starring Michael Fassbender, known to be one of the worst films of the last decade. But, you know, Michael Fassbender is hung like a donkey, so he's <laughs> fine. I would have thought that was in loads more movies, but apparently, according to INDB, it's only been in a small handful, including Detroit Rock City and Dick. Right. <laughs> Tying it back to Fassbender again. Uh, I, I laid the bait out. I was hoping you'd take it. <laughs> no. <laughs> So you don't, you don't. I do, I do. I love the D. <laughs> well, anyway, <laughs> they say that a master of suspense will get your attention with sweet nothings before throwing hell at you. And uh, so a moment ago we gave you popcorn and now we're going to give you till death. So there's the, there's the contrast. <laughs> Did that even make sense? No. Okay. So the film that we're uh, talking about this week is one that's released into home entertainment, and it's um it's one I've seen. I highly recommend it. it stars Megan Fox, uh, Owen Mackin, and Kellen Mulvey, who I know you're a fan of. You love the Kel. I do love the Kel. <laughs> so it's classic thriller stuff. Think Stephen King meets Alfred Hitchcock. The premise has Megan Fox, a bored housewife. Uh, she's tired of a loveless marriage, and on the morning after her husband tries to woo her back. At their lake house, she wakes up handcuffed to him and then he blows his brains out. So, you know, she is left with a corpse attached to her for the entire film and it appears that uh, he has, before blowing his brains out, cleaned and removed the house of anything that would enable her to escape. So there's quite the conundrum. And uh, that is the premise for Till Death. Uh, Enter a few robbers, mind you, that come along and uh, the scene is set for a very tense thriller. Because it sounds a bit like, what was that uh, Stephen King one that came out? Uh... I knew you were going to say that. Yeah. <laughs> you are going to say Gerard's Game? Yeah, Gerard's Game. Yeah, it's yeah. got a very similar kind of feel to it. It goes a lot further than I that. Just, I just, I mean... I... There's no degloving in this one. I don't want to put the movie down. <laughs> and I, I haven't seen it. But I just, I don't know if I can buy Megan Fox as like a housewife. Mate. She is phenomenal in this. And I'm not just saying that because we've got this interview coming up, but I <laughs> no. watched it and I said this in the interview, which you'll hear in a moment, the first 15 minutes when she is the board housewife, I didn't buy it at all. Yeah. And I said that to the director, you know, Scott. And, and, Sam. I, <laughs> and I said to him, but then when the, the flip happens, when the, the, he blows his brains out, everything changes and she is perfectly cast. Yeah. She's much more a survivalist sort of actress. So. Look, I, I, look, I have a lot of time for her. I like her in everything that she's she's been in, and not just uh, you know for the obvious kind of reason. I think she actually is quite talented, but just ordinary is not the word that I would ever associate with someone she's, that looks like Megan. Fox. She's not an ordinary housewife. She is. Uh, she's in a loveless marriage, and she's actually having an affair at the same time. That, well, that, I mean, yes. Yeah. <laughs> And what we, was the? Uh, we learnt last week that Chloe would turn lesbian for uh, for Megan, Megan Fox. Fox. Oh, well, there you go. I mean, <laughs> look. The funny thing is, my father used to say to me when I was a young man, that "Show me the most attractive woman in the world, and I'll show you a guy sick of fucking it." <laughs> and I just, I don't believe that's a thing with Megan Fox. <laughs> Anyway, let's catch up with the director himself. S.K. Dale is his name, and uh, we caught up over the phone recently. Enjoy, and we'll see you on the other side. 
Hey, Scott. Uh, thanks for taking the time to chat. Uh, I went into this film with as little information as possible, and it really caught me off guard. Uh, it's an incredible feature debut. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I think you know, going into it with, with no idea, not having seen the trailer or the poster or anything, is the best way to enjoy this, this film, that's for sure. I'd completely agree. And you know what? Like, if I'm going to be honest with you, um, the first maybe 10, 15 minutes, I, I just wasn't too sure what I was getting into. Like, it kind of had a little bit of a soap opera kind of aspect to it. And then, you know, when the, the twist really takes effect, man, it was great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, to me, having, you know, when I first read the script, that's the first, you know, 10, 15 minutes up to the, them getting to the house. Um it, it's it's such a tonal shift to the next day that you know it makes that shock of the situation even more shocking. Um, it always yeah it was it's one of those things that you know we tried to. I think in terms of developing the script, it was we, we did a lot of work on the start and the, the finish, so we tried to kind of add a little bit more tension there. But ultimately, yeah, it is it is this kind of. It does set you up for this completely different melodrama type of uh, relationship movie and then it flips it on its head, which I always loved uh, the concept of. Yeah, absolutely. And like if, if anyone had any doubt, you know, about Megan Fox's capabilities, like a second you get to that house, boy, does she turn it on and it's incredible. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm, you know, I'm really, I, I knew when we, when we got her on board, like I knew that she was going to, um, attack these action sequences with 110%, but, uh, um, you know, I was really um, amazed at the performance that she, she gave as well. It was, I'm, I'm really happy with how that came out. Yeah, right. And where, where, did the, um, where did the concept come from? Were you on board with this right from the start, or did you jump in later? No, I actually came to it. Uh, so um, the writer, uh, Jason Carby, he... Um, he uh, wrote the screenplay and it actually made the blood list in America, which is like the uh, the blacklist that they have the best unproduced screenplays for horror films. Uh, and so it made that and the production company saw it, picked it up and then started searching for a director. And I think they were searching for about a year until, um, until I got on the phone with them and we just had the same idea about what this movie was and the tone of it, and the visuals and how we were going to, executed um and and yeah and so i came on board a little bit later we developed the script a little bit further when when i came onto it um jason he's a, i think his original intention was to actually direct this himself so it was a bit more smaller in scale even more so than what it is so it was just letting it open up and kind of creating that roller coaster of a action sequence of that last you know 15 minutes uh, and how it kind of just snowballs and gets crazier and crazier as it, as it goes along. Yeah, absolutely. And, and talking about the, the visual aspect that you just mentioned, I'm particularly interested to know just a bit about the production and the exterior scenes. Were they shot on location? Was it indoors? Like, was it fake snow? Like, was that problematic? Like, yeah, we were gearing up to shoot this film last March uh, of uh, 2020 and then COVID hit. And it was, we, we shot in Bulgaria and it was winter at the time. And when COVID hit, everything got shut down. We all got sent back. And it was actually uh, the day of my birthday that everything got shut down. So it was a real punch in the guts. But, uh, you know, uh, a few months later we got back and we were gearing up to shoot it. But now it was uh, coming into summer over there and we had to rethink 
uh, everything. So uh, a lot of it is digital set extensions and practical uh, effects with the fake snow and everything like that. So it was this mixture of trying to do as much as we could uh, in camera, but also um, we had done some scans of some areas back in March when it was snowing, so we actually had the surroundings that we needed uh, covered in snow. Um, and then the backyard in particular was actually on a soundstage, so the house and the backyard and the boat shed, that's all on a soundstage, and we had a 360-degree backdrop made. I didn't want to shoot with green screen. I thought it's going to be really distracting for the actors, and it's going to make every single shot of visual effects. And, you know, this if we, if we can get this backdrop, this 360 backdrop, then we can, you know, for, for long lens shots, for quick snaps and everything, we can rely on that. We get the lighting, we get the feel of it. Uh, but then we can also you know, do digital set extensions for the more elaborate shots. Uh, so, yeah, a lot of it, uh, you know, it's, it's all just uh, the movie magic. <laughs> One of the things I love most about um, sort of these type of films is when they are shot on sound stages, and I think in your case it really gives it a, a Hitchcockian kind of uh, feel. Yeah, well, because we were shooting in such a controlled uh, environment, it, it really allowed us to um, focus on the visuals and, and the inserts and the close-ups and to try and build the tension, because obviously for when you're on a location, you're fighting against the sun, or if we were shooting it for real on a, on a real snow landscape, we're not going to get a whole lot of takes of Megan running through the snow barefoot. So that environment really opened up the, the way we could shoot it and the way, uh, the way it's lit and everything like that. So it really helped us uh, create that atmosphere and those visuals. Yeah, absolutely. And I can't imagine that it's much fun being caked in blood all day. So like, how, how physical and mentally demanding was this for her? Uh, I mean, uh, the, the physicality of this role, you don't really think about it on the paper until you're on set and she's chained to a real stuntman. We actually had a dummy built, but it, it just didn't look realistic at all the way. You know, because she's moving it and everything, you're really relying on the, the movement of the body to, to look as, as, as real as possible. So we ended up relying on the stuntman. So... Uh, unfortunately, that meant she was <laughs> to be dragging a real person around for, for the, the whole movie. But, uh, uh, you know, she really embraced it. And um, uh, I was, I think I went in expecting uh, a bit more uh, pushback from that. Uh, and also, you know, the, the, the stuntman himself, you know, having to be pulled along all these different surfaces uh, half naked. You know, I was. I just can't believe how incredible, incredible, like they just embrace it so well, like the way they actually commit themselves to each stunt and there's certain things that, uh, you know, there's a, there's a sequence where he falls down the stairs and he goes tumbling down and to me it was incredible because he has to fight every urge in his body not to tense up he has to stay dead for the whole roll down there and uh i, I don't know how he did it but uh he, he nailed it he sure did that first tumble with like his full body weight just flopping down the stairs was like it made it a really unique thing i hadn't seen before yeah yeah well i think it was quite unique for them because they're used to uh, you know 
falling downstairs isn't uh, the most original stunt, but having to do it while you know not allowing yourself to to you know be floppy and move around and and all that that's the challenge of it. And I feel like you're fighting every kind of flight or fight response in your body to 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 tense up or to do anything like that. So it's it's quite. Uh, it's quite impressive to watch. Absolutely. And um, and also in the cast, you had uh, Callum Mulvey, who is inspired casting as far as I'm concerned. It's always nice to see the Aussie pedigree sort of there on the screen. Do you have a history with him or was it an audition process? No, I've, I've um, admired Callum since, uh, since I, I watched Underbelly. I think I was in film uh, school at the time and he was just one of those uh, actors that really popped out to me and... Um, when we were starting to search for uh, an actor, when he popped up as a name, I was just pushing him towards the producers uh, and just saying, this is the guy I know what he's capable of. And, um, you know, I think he's, he's obviously done a lot more work here uh, in Australia over the years. So it took a, a bit of convincing, but once once he was on board and uh, everything like that, they, were, they loved him. Yeah, I think he just, he really... He came on board with a sense of. Um, uh, I, I think there's something working with uh, other Australians. You, you just come on, and there's a there's a laid back quality to it. But um, you know, also you, you're not kind of detrimental to the quality without you know. It's just there's something about working with other Australian uh, actors or crew and stuff like that that uh, really helps build this kind of good atmosphere on set that I love. So getting him on board was, was a big win for me. Yep, for sure. And did uh, the, the backstory of his eye, uh, was that already in the story or did you did you retcon the script to capitalise on his appearance? Uh, it was actually, it was always in the story and um, it was one of those things that um, I think, you know, having him come on board added a sense of reality to it and... One of the things that I think he brought to it was, uh, you know, in the story, it's kind of like a big, big scar going down the eye, and it's all milky white and everything. I think he brought like a real sense of, um, of realism to it. You know, I think we could have gone over the top with it, and I really liked how he, you know, brought that in. And I think it is him drawing from his own life and uh, everything like that. But I, I will say one of the uh, most intense scenes to direct was uh, the final sequence uh, under the water where we have uh, uh, someone stabbing him in the eye and uh, that was scary because it was he said to me, you know, I've only got one one left so let's get this right so it was a little bit intense um, uh, that sequence but uh, and when it happened, he the, the way he was screaming underwater, I thought we had really damaged his eye. Um, and I kind of jumped up out of my chair. I ran over to the to the water tank and he kind of, he came swimming up and he looked at me and he said, oh, so that felt a bit fake, didn't it? And I said, actually, I legitimately thought we had just blinded you. So I'm really happy with that performance. <laughs> That's incredible. Oh, man. Uh, so, before I before I let you run, there's a couple of things I just want to ask you. Um, the film was produced by Millennium Media, um, who they turn out some fantastic thriller and action titles. Uh, did the likes of Avi and Danny Lerner have much creative input on the film, or did they just let you run with it? 
with um, with uh, a whole spectrum of budgets. So I'm obviously on the lower level of that those budget levels, um, but really, you know, um, I, I I worked closely with um, the producer Tanner Mobley on this. Uh, and he comes from a writing background, and so it was really just coming from a place of what's best for the story. But besides that, that was really the only. Uh, there was never any kind of push or push back and forth. Um, and yeah, we because of COVID rules, we actually the producers actually couldn't be on on set. They were watching from a distance, but um, yeah, we you know I think they, they were just everyone there was incredibly supportive and. Um, throughout it, and I couldn't have asked for uh, a better team to to produce this because yeah, because of how creatively freeing it was, and how much trust they had in me as a first time uh, filmmaker. But yeah, well, if that was a gamble for them, it's paid off. I'm sure they're very happy with the result. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, last question before um, before we wrap up is, what's next for you? This is such a bold movie to launch with. Have you got anything else up your sleeve? Awesome. Well, whatever that might be, I look forward to it and I'm sure everyone else does too. So, But thanks heaps for your time, mate. It's been great. Thank you. No, I really appreciate it. It's exciting. It's, it's, it's been weird uh, having the release over in the US and being stuck here in Australia and not being able to uh, <laughs> enjoy it. So I'm excited for it to actually come out here uh, yeah, for people to see it in Australia. All right. This has been... <laughs> <laughs> this has been this has been Bye, everybody i know you probably didn't hear it we just talk really fast in kentucky so fast that ben can't hear us yeah Bye, everybody. is joe calling us has-beens oh we were never I, i'm a never been. was sir we never was so back to fun with bonehead weekly we're talking about winter films winter thrillers and here's the thing about winter thrillers folks and i found this out before i decided to pick mine there's a lot of movies with kurt russell in the snow that i like the thing okay hateful eight. Oh, the the hockey game i like oh miracle that actually is a good movie is another yeah. one of great his great performances kurt russell's wonderful but i'm not going to do any of those i'm going to pick a david fincher classic the simply i just love it i actually prefer the remake on this the girl with the drag uh the, the girl with the dragon tattoo fincher's movie i know the original one's damn good but i just love fincher's remake maybe it's just more american for me i don't know but i I love that movie do i really need to explain i don't i think most people know the plot about elizabeth salander salamander i actually forgot her last name Let's call it's her Elizabeth Dragon about Tattoo. J.D. Salinger. And she's going to hunt a serial killer. I know the, the lady with no eyebrows, so you can never tell she's angry. How's that? That's true. There you go. <laughs> you guys like it? I just love it. Oh, no, no. I uh, To be honest, I, I really enjoyed it. I haven't seen all of it, but I literally I really enjoyed won- it. That five minutes I saw that one time. No, no. I've seen all of it. I saw it in theaters. 
the theater. That the anyway. But what I was gonna say is I I um I love the opening, which yeah. has nothing to do with the rest of the movie, but it's just it's eye catching. It, I see the opening and I stop to watch the opening. Yeah, he always has great openings. Remember the opening of seven. But go, Chad, go. Uh, I am going to talk about, and I've, I've mentioned this several times, but it seriously is one of my favorite movies. So I want to talk about one of Harold Ramis's lesser known films, and it's personally one of my favorite films. Yes, and that, Club Paradise. No, I'm talking about the ice heart. I don't think I've ever seen Club Paradise, gentlemen. Well, it's Club Paradise, Paradise would have to It has Robin Williams and Peter O'Toole. Yeah, what kind of movie would you not watch with Robin Williams and Peter? Well, I did. Levy's in it, smoking weed with Rick Moranis. Okay, I have Club seen. Paradise I have seen is, Club Paradise. Uh, Chad, you'll you'll remember Club Paradise as a uh, lesser known follow up to Club Dread. Yeah, I I remember. I I seriously remember Club Paradise now. I really do. But All no, right. the the ice harvest. It is it is Harold Ramis trying to do the Coen Brothers. Is basically what it is. He admitted uh, it. Yeah, and and it is a great movie that stars John Cusack, Billy Bob Thornton, Connie Nielsen, uh, Mike Starr, William Dick, and all, the Oliver fucking Platt, one of my favorite actors of all time. Um, it is a great crime thriller that takes place all in one night. And it, in my opinion, it does a really good job of making you feel cold because I mean, it's just cold scene after cold scene. It's it takes it takes place in Wichita Falls, which in our neck of the woods is a very, very miserable place to be in the winter. So yeah. uh, I, I highly recommend The Ice Harvest if you haven't seen it. With that same idea of movies that actually make you feel cold, I actually, and, and we've talked about this one before as well, but why not do it again? The Grey, um, uh, Liam Neeson, B- Big Wolf, Cole. Yeah, and just that, that idea of, of, that one. of having to survive and, and go through that. The other one that comes to mind just because of cold is Snowpiercer. And either one of those are, are just effective. Uh, I would say the day after tomorrow, because I can remember people complaining that it made them James, I'm cold. pretty sure we said one. So go out right now and watch The Thing and The Hateful Eight, because The Hateful Eight is basically just a sequel to it. Or is it a prequel? Do, do, it's, do. it's in the past, Joe. That's how prequels work. This has been Bonehead Weekly, not Funsies. I don't know what's growing on me, gentlemen. Funsies. <laughs> so does Fungus. Oh my God, that's how we get. Welcome to Bonehead Fungus. Bonehead Weekly Funsies. That's what they're going by now for some reason. Funsies. Yeah. That's what I call my. Uh... <laughs> you said that last week? Did I? That's yeah. what I call my underpants? <laughs> <laughs> you remember Sam went, what? <laughs> <laughs> I've, only got, I've only got two jokes, Glenn. <laughs> uh, they would be uh, Joe, Chad, and James. Not the jokes, but the boneheads themselves. The, the funsies. <laughs> the funsies. And they are oh, kind of hey. like, hey, it's making sense now. Yeah. I like it. They're the funsies. <laughs> they bring that touch of mayhem to the show. Like, could you, how awesome, how good would an animated series be of the funsies? Mm. And it's, it's them, like, yeah. anima- animated. Well, their logo's animated. And, yeah. Why not? Why not? Anyway, you can catch their regular full-size podcast, uh, wherever you get your podcast from. I do recommend their the YouTube channel because they present it in video form and that's kind of snazzy, particularly when they've got good guests. Anyway, next one. Let's do some more recommendations. Mine's a bit of an obscurity. Uh, this is a movie from 2010 called Essential Killing, which I'm sure not many people have heard of. Stars heard of Vincent Gallo and Emmanuel Signer from Frantic. Mm. Yes, and this, heard of this. I'm going to butcher this name, but it was directed by Jerzy Skomolinski or Skomolowski or some kind of Polish name. Uh, I think if you read that closely, it's Paul Smith. 
You just butchered that name. And this guy previously had made a movie called uh, The Lightship with Robert Duvall and William Forsyth. So he's got a little bit of a uh, pedigree going on there. I'm sure he's made a lot of Polish films. This one's a, f- a fantastic film. This uh, caught me off guard. It's um, a very simple story. It's basically a silent movie. I mean, it has sound. It just has no dialogue. Uh, and it's about a Taliban member played by Vincent Gallo who is captured and transported to an unknown hostile location in a frozen sort of wilderness and he manages to escape uh, off the back of the truck and then um, flees into the wilderness. So the film then is about him surviving. And like I said, zero dialogue, purely survivalist. Um, and the guy is a savage. Like in order to survive, he kills anything that crosses his path. He steals from them, he feeds from them. But <laughs> he's a method actor, right? Vincent Gallo yeah. is a weird cat. <laughs> this is how method you can he buy is. His jizz on the internet. I was gonna, I was gonna talk about that, <laughs> and we can still, we can definitely still talk about that. And boy, do I have a story to tell. But um, this you is bought some of his jizz. <laughs> is that what was on that glazed donut you gave me earlier? <laughs> it comes in three flavors. <laughs> but how's this for extreme? And there's a particular scene in this where he crosses paths with a, a pregnant woman, and the character um, holds her down and, and feeds from her breast. Right. I was going to say, please tell me it's uh, Chloe. Uh, no. Was it seven? No. Seven <laughs> brown gets, bunny. He gets a blowjob, and then they just go. <laughs> there's no dialogue, but they love each other, and they're spanning time. Oh and then man. They just go their separate ways. But he breastfeeds from this woman. But being a method actor, he insisted on having an actual lactating woman. To breastfeed from on the film, right? Completely unnecessary. Like, is that something that uh, you think actresses put on their <laughs> no. on their resumes, like horse riding, sword fighting, <laughs> lactating? Yeah, hence why the on woman command. the woman in question is not recognisable. You've never seen her before. Probably right. never acted again. <laughs> it's like, oh, hang on, you're familiar, but you know, you're that lactating woman in that <laughs> Vincent Gallo film. Yeah. <laughs> Look, I am taking the piss, but the film itself is incredible. Uh, you can get it from... The only place to get it from is Eagle Entertainment. They actually have it oh. on Blu-ray and DVD. Uh, really good film. But uh, as a side note, I did want to mention the fact that he sold sperm from his website, right? So you could buy his sperm several years ago. But um, there I, don't were con- know if he ever sh- I don't know if it ever got shipped out. Well, he got in trouble because he's a bit of a racist. So he said like he won't sell it to anyone of a particular dark skin. Right. Or a tone. Like, once you pass a certain tone of colour, he won't sell it. Right. Right. But here's the, <laughs> here's the hilarious part. He put a public statement on his contact page. So, you can write to Vincent Gallo at any time you want. But here's the disclaimer that you have to read first. So, bear with me. It's hilarious. This is my personal contact page for me, Vincent Gallo. Do not send me scripts as I have never read a script in my life, including the ones to films I've acted in and ones that I've written and directed. (laughs) If you'd like to send me nude photos of yourself when you were born a female, then please do. I only accept JPEG attachments. A warning to all the bitter or jealous or unemployed or frustrated or mean or nasty or underloved or underpaid or underhung men and butchy girls. Think before you write to me and (laughs) think how small and silly you appear when angry, jealous and bitter. And then please do write to him. Write to him. (laughs) I'm, I'm, I'm all those things he listed. <laughs> so I feel like I he's basically it's he's baiting the trap. Check it out. Go to his website because it is something else. I remember I remember uh, like in the early two thousands or late two thousands, like spending a lot of time <laughs> there when the when the jizz first went on sale. <laughs> Going, I, can't, 
can't believe this guy is, a, is real. I know. Like, it's this is hilarious. And do I want some? <laughs> and, uh, you know, it was just, it was always just out of my price range. If it was like 80 bucks for some Vincent Gallo jizz, and it's not like that guy does, wasn't, and like, you know, if you'd watch things like, was it, was it Trouble Every Day or whatever it is, where he's the, the cannibal movie where they end up with, and Beatrice Dahl is in it, and that he's like, that's the, he's like a, a newlywed on a, on his honeymoon. I don't remember. And he, he gets, the, the singer and it like along with the, the taste for flesh you, you have this kind of increased sexual appetite and he's he doesn't want to have sex with his wife because he knows that if he does he'll he'll want to kill her like he wants to you know you kind of want to fuck and kill at the same time and Beatrice Dahl is kind of separate from him and she's off like walking the highways of France <laughs> uh, picking up truck drivers and fucking and killing them but he loves his wife and doesn't want to do it. So she, so he keeps saying, you know, you know, and she, they're supposed to be on the honeymoon. He keeps refusing to have sex with her, but she walks in on him jerking off all the time. <laughs> and he's just like shooting gallons of jizz. <laughs> out, and you see it in the movie. You, you see it. And so you're like, so why is this guy charging so much for his jizz when clearly he's got an excess of it <laughs> and he's getting rid of it several times a day? Like surely if it was 80 bucks, I'd be like, what would I'll you buy some Vincent Gallo would jizz. You, would you wear it around your neck? What would you do? Yeah, I'd put it in a vial. I'd, I'd, you know, or I'd find a like a healthy egg ovum and grow my own Vincent Gallo. <laughs> That's it. Yeah. I'd make my own. I'd make, I'd make my own. We could all make our own Vincent yeah. Gallos. We just have like a bunch of like you know, I'd tinker with the DNA a little bit, so mm. you know, so that he only comes out. He's only two foot tall, like you know. Or something like that. Oh, keep shit. keep them, and then you know, because there's a cl- because he's a clone, <laughs> he has no like rights under the law. <laughs> so I could just keep him as an indentured servant. But if it's a Vincent Gallo, it'd be like a real shitty, arrogant little shit of a servant. <laughs> it'd be horrible. He you wouldn't. Could, you, know, you could dispose of him whenever you want. That's right. <laughs> You'd have to swallow because him, there's no laws. Know. There's no laws protecting him. <laughs> Oh mate. Anyway, we're taking the piss, but the movie Essential Killing is fantastic. <laughs> I assure you, it's really so good. So would be miniature Vincent Gallo. That is true too. Beat that. <laughs> Beat the, I, I can't. <laughs> uh, I'm talk about, another one from the '90s for me uh, is a film I saw this uh, theatrically and I loved it. Uh, it's goes by the name Ravenous. Oh gosh, yes. Talking about cannibals. Talking about cannibals. I'm not sure if it doesn't have another name. I reckon but, it's just uh, ravenous. Just Everyone ravenous. around the world I've spoken to that knows this film, because uh, I talk about everybody. Yeah. <laughs> I talk to everybody about this film. <laughs> they're all they're all friends of Glenn. The consensus is it's ravenous. It's ravenous. Um, it's directed by Antonia Bird, who uh, previously had done Priest, which which I keep forgetting was a made for TV movie, but uh, was super controversial. Miramax got into a lot of trouble for releasing Did it. Did she do one of the segments in Four Rooms? No, okay. I don't think so. That oh. was. Um, there's Alison Al- Anders. Anders. And, I thought there were two women and two men. Santana, uh, Rodriguez, Alison Anders. Okay. You, you keep talking and I'll look it up. Yeah. I'm pretty sure it was um, like the guy who directed Citizen Russo. Okay. Continue. What was that guy? Was that guy? You know, is it not, 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 maybe not the Citizen Ruth guy, but it's like one of those. I think, I think it was another man. Anyway. So this, it's a, this is a horror comedy set in the American Civil War. Alexandra Rockwell. You're correct. Alexandra Rockwell, yeah. Uh, and it's about a bunch of Confederate soldiers who man a remote mountain fort and their kind of solitude is interrupted with the arrival of a half-staffed Robert Carlyle who tells them that he he and his party were 
trying to take a shortcut through the nearby mountain range and got caught in a blizzard and were trapped in a cave and they resorted to cannibalism to stay alive and uh, he is the only one to kind of make it out while the um the the people remaining had kind of butchered everyone else yep um and so he kind of leads a troop of these soldiers back out but things don't go as they plan <laughs> and it's it's great it's got a great cast it's Jeffrey Jones is the kind of the the colonel of the of the fort guy pierce is ostensibly the the star of the film yep. he's the um the kind of the newly arrived captain who has he's been he's just been promoted from lieutenant to captain because he single-handedly took this like the enemy headquarters in during this battle but he's also being punished because the reason he was able to do this is because he pretended to be dead and uh, he was buried under a ton of bodies and uh kind of drank the blood of <laughs> the other bodies piled on top of him and became like super strong kind of cannibal man <laughs> and was able to, uh, you know, overthrow the the kind of thing. So he's kind of, he's got like a bit of a trouble past, but there's the weirdest character in it is, uh, and he doesn't have that much to do, but in it, but he's David Arquette yeah. plays like a stoner. He's kind of always misplaced. Yeah. Wouldn't no matter Except what for is in, uh, that was it rumble. Are you ready? Ready to rumble? Yeah, Perfectly cast and ready to rumble. Great film. Uh, <laughs> and he's really good in. Um, oh, now I can't he's good in lots of, of things, but his character always kind of feels like just on yeah. the fringe, you know. Yeah. <laughs> well, he was in that movie at Monster that we played at Monster Fest last year too, where he's the um, prisoner they bring into the hospital with uh, the woman from May, and the and woman it's Angela Bettis. Angela Bettis is like the nurse, and they're. Right. Actually, like running a organ. Did he direct it? No, he's in it. He's because okay. he directs the, films too. Yeah. Anyway, uh, but uh, who else is in it? Uh, Jeremy Davies, who I've never liked, is like the uh, religious guy. Him and David Arquette are the same. Like they're kind of weird on the fringe in a lot of movies, and yeah. not quite all there. Like it's it's actually a problem because in this movie, pretty much for the majority of it, you kind of want to shake Guy Pierce and just just like just be a man, like. <laughs> Grow a pair of balls at some point. I always wonder how Jeremy Davis gets cast in things, man. Like he'd be hard work, I reckon. Yeah, I don't know. Like, I mean, he was, but he was a big, a big deal after Saving Private Ryan. Yeah, Million Dollar Hotel. And million Dollar, yeah, Million Dollar Hotel. <laughs> Which I, I do like that film. And he, he's good in Justified. He, but he's just so kind of thin. Yeah, Spank of the Monkey. Spank of the Monkey. Yeah. There's two uh, weeks in a row that we've referenced that one. <laughs> um. But there's also Neil McDonough, who's who is fast becoming one of my favorite actors. I like him in everything that he's in. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's this guy Stephen Spinella, who has a pretty big part in the movie. He plays like the drunk major in the fort. Mm-hmm. Who, when I looked up his IMDb, he's been in a ton of stuff, but oh. I just do not recognize him. Yeah, okay. Like he just looks generic. Okay, keep talking. I'm gonna look um, him up too. And John Spencer from uh, Red Heat, and well, probably everyone knows him from West Wing, but. Red Heat uh, also turns up as the general of the of the kind of army, and it's a really cool film. Um, not as I remember like coming out of the cinema after I first saw it, and I was like running around going, "He's licking me!" like <laughs> like repeating all these lines and stuff like that. And then I watch it again. I'm like, "He doesn't." Jeremy Davis doesn't do it like that at all. <laughs> like I just had totally exaggerated in my head. Did you mention was the, the person that was licking him? Was it Jeffrey Jones? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That was off camera. <laughs> uh, no. 
Jeffrey Jones actually is surprised. Like he has, he has some surprising yeah, I mean, kind of action parts mean, in it. Yes, he's a disgraced actor, fallen from grace, but he was a good actor. I, I always liked him. In yeah, stuff. same here. Um, yeah. What can you say? Like is a he was is he, uh, he he had the pictures, wasn't he? That was his thing. Kitty pictures. pictures. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, kind of unfortunate. And well, unfortunate. he still came back and made the Deadwood movie. Like you know, he had a little bit of a resurgence. You know, it's, it's the did the time like did the crime paid the time whatever the fuck that saying is. He did he he actually did the time. Yes. Well, sometime. Yeah. But anyway, ravenous. Last week it was Victor Selva, and now it's and now Jeffrey Jones. Jeffrey Jones. This, this and, show's, and you talked about this show's uh, taken on a really weird theme. <laughs> he was just jerking off in yeah, a no, cinema. No, no, he was a, he was all right. Was Paul Rubens. He was just jerking off in the cinema. Wasn't yeah, it? no. The, 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 oh, jeez, here we go. Okay, so the, <laughs> the story with him was he got busted with um, vintage photos. You know those old, um, I don't know what they call them, those old photos sort of in sepia. Um, right. And a lot of them, it was questionable. The age of the, the, uh, the like, participants like, was questionable. Like the Lewis, because that was Lewis Carroll's thing. Yeah, and he got let off. Like, he was not charged or convicted or anything like that, and it was deemed that these are of historical context. Um, there was right. a, an art form behind them back in the day, you know, and you could argue the little rascals were children exploited, that kind of thing, you know. These okay. weren't sex photos. They were just nude photos. Right. Anyway, bloody hell. Okay. <laughs> Contemplating whether to leave it in or cut it out, cut but it I'm, I'm just going to leave it in. But it's an awful, <laughs> awful fucking segue for Chloe's segment. <laughs> Top that. <laughs> Hello and happy Monday, friends. I'm Chloe from Movie Night with the Richie Girls. The boys had me really thinking hard about the topic this week, and after some extensive googling, I decided I just had to be selfish and pick a movie by one of my favourite writers and directors. So, in saying that, let's just dive right into Quentin Tarantino's 2015 spaghetti western-esque gorefest, The Hateful Fate. Set in post-Civil War Midwest America, the notorious bounty hunter John the Hangman Ruth is travelling with his fugitive, Daisy Domagoo, towards her demise, when a blizzard forces them both and some travelling companions to take refuge in a small lodge. This so happens to be already occupied by some other interesting characters sheltering from the storm. And therein lies the setting for a true Tarantino movie full of twists and turns, lies and deception, and hardcore gore. Now with a name like Quentin Tarantino, you're not likely to forget that anytime soon. But if you're still having trouble trying to place him, maybe think of movies like Pulp Fiction with John Travolta, or Kill Bill with Uma Thurman, or his most recent powerhouse, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood with Brad and Leo. If none of those ring your bell, you've been under a rock and it's time to crawl on out and shave your legs and start living. I like to compare Tarantino movies to country music. They're popular, but just not to everyone's taste. But what you can really take away and appreciate is the fact that there's always some sort of twisted story being told. He wrote and directed and narrated this western, so there is no way you can call this movie-making, foot-loving maniac lazy, that's for sure. The movie itself will set you back close to three hours, so settle in, get some snacks and get comfy. It's a 100% not for children or those with a weak stomach. But if you're like me and you love a bit of gore, you'll be waiting about mm, an hour and a half before that action happens. But it will happen and it will not disappoint you. 
blood vomit, gunshots to the balls, slow-mo kill shots, and a sneaky cameo from Channing Tatum. Ladies, am I right? The Hateful Eight is championed by the likes of Samuel L. Jackson, who has now worked on six Tarantino movies, Kurt Russell, Michael Madsen, who's up to five collaborations, and Walton Goggins. Just a few of the actors who embody their characters so well that will have you invested from the get-go. Now, one thing I love about the way Tarantino does things is that he's not afraid to let his actresses get ugly. He loves them sweaty. He loves them covered in blood getting the shit kicked out of them and having them kick ass right back. He writes for strong, badass female characters who are flawed and like to get their revenge. This movie is no exception. Jennifer Jason Leigh, who plays the fugitive, Daisy Domagoo, is one hell of a dirtbag, and I am here for it. Streaming platform Stan once again had the goods, and if you're in the mood for a piece of art that will stick in your brain for months to come, this movie is for you. In saying that, it's not my favourite Tarantino, and it's no 10 out of 10, but it came close. That's all from me this week. Have a happy and safe Monday, friends. You know, Chloe can only be called our newbie for so long. She's delivered three weeks' worth of bangers now, and uh, so she's just part of it now. She's ingrained. She's one, of, she's one of us. She's one of us, which uh, after the last conversation, I don't know if she wants to be anymore. <laughs> if you like Chloe's take on movies, then catch her on her own podcast, Movie Night with the Richie Girls. Just uh, type that into wherever you get your podcast from. And of course, as I said at the start of the show, Chloe will be back on Wednesday night to join me on the Up Late video. Um, that's a lot of fun. And that's on YouTube and Facebook at 10.30 on Wednesday. Into our final round of recommendations. Um, all right. So I'm going to go first on this one again. Okay. Do it. So this is a movie that had a very troubled release. Um, you know, had a few in-house squabbles, I think you could say, as far as the um, the release and all that kind of stuff goes. But it, it is Detox from 2002, starring Sylvester Stallone. Um, or is it like, is it ICU? Yeah, well, the actual title's Detox, most of the yeah, world. Like, that's I know how I Netflix it have it as ICU, but when you watch the film, Detox is the title and on the, it. And the poster of it is Detox. Exactly right, which is a far better title. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, Stallone leads phenomenal cast of characters, which I'll, uh, I'll go through in a minute, but, uh, the film kind of begins in a seven style thriller. It's a serial killer thriller about an FBI agent chasing a serial killer. And like I said, the first act is out of the book of seven science of the lambs, that kind of thing. But then like it takes a really weird turn when the, the killer murders Sylvester Stallone, who is a, a FBI agent, murders, murders his girlfriend. He resorts to alcoholism and then his boss... Uh, enlists him into a cop-only detox program, which is set in like a frozen wilderness in an old uh, silo, like a missile silo. And it, it turns into like Alien 3. Like it's this... Totally. Yeah, yeah. It's this weird kind of thing. Here's the ensemble. So you've got Sylvester Stallone, Robert Patrick, Tom Berenger, Chris Christopherson, Sean Patrick Flannery, Charles S. Dutton, Rance Howard, Dina Meyer, Robert Prosky... Polly Walker, Jeffrey Wright, and Courtney B. Vance. Like, that is... Yeah, how well, do you get that many people into this film? I was gonna, yeah. Well, I was going to say, well, you kill them off. Like, Dynamite <laughs> doesn't, never makes it to the missile asylum. And, and Sean Patrick Flannery goes within five minutes of being inside that yeah, asylum. He but doesn't the, have much of it. But at least he actually still looks like him. Like, in, <laughs> he's in a, his new boxing movie. And yeah. you're like, who is that? Is that supposed to... He looks weird. That he's, happened in um, Boondock Saints 2. Yeah. 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 But um, look, that is an incredible cast. And Sylvester Stallone actually really likes this film. I've heard him defend it a few times, and he talks about the that was the you know, the squabbles behind the scenes. And, and but was it was it the squabbles with him? <laughs> Is it like the like the water the Waterworld kind of 
firing the director kind of. Maybe. I mean, I think he, he looks quite weird in this film. Like, he's lost maybe five kilos too much. Yeah, he's, he's, he's not really he's like not buff. No. He's not buff. Um, I kind of really like him in this. I think he has a lot more personality in this. You know, from the early scenes before his girlfriend is killed, he's got a sense of humour. He's actually got some expression in his face for once. Yeah. And then when they get to this place, he's in the grips of despair and sort of has to claw his way out of that. But I don't know. This, this movie was also directed by Jim Gillespie, who made... Um, I know what you did last summer. Right. And there's a lot of that in there too because the killer wears the hood and carries sort of the yeah. pick and, and it's a slasher as well. Like, it's just a weird kind of film. I, I guess it didn't resonate with people because the genres are kind of mended, melded together. Yeah. But it wasn't, it was around the time that Stalin was doing things like Copland as well where yeah. he was going in a bit of a di- different direction yeah. from this kind of standard action movies that he was kind of known for at the time. Absolutely. And like, I remember when Copland came out, everyone was saying, oh, it's the return of Sylvester Stallone, yeah. like the actor. And I, I, I don't know. I didn't think he ever went away, really. No. That was only he, a couple of years after, like, Tango and Cash or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> and Stop All My Mum Will Shoot. And, Oscar. Uh, Rhinestone. Oscar. <laughs> uh, Rhinestone would have been a little earlier. But um, curiously, this one, the cinematographer on this was Dean Semler. The, the great Dean great Semler, you know, from Dances with Wolves fame, City Slickers, Dead Calm. Did Young Guns as well. He's an Aussie. Mad Max. Mad Max Aussie. 2 and 3. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah, so anyway, that is my first recommendation. Third recommendation. Yes. Third <laughs> recommendation. <laughs> Fuck me dead. All right, off you go. So back to the, I'll go back to my first recommendation, <laughs> uh, 30 Days of Night from 2007. Uh, <laughs> Jesus Christ. All right, off you go. <laughs> so, funny enough, my, the film <laughs> I'm going to talk about next also has uh, two titles, the second of which I had never heard of before. I, I did the search for it on IMDb to get all the kind of details. And it is 1974's Devil Times Five, which, if you search for it on IMDb, is called People Toys, <laughs> which is a great, like, it's a great title. I actually kind of like the title, considering what the movie is about. Uh, and it's a, it's a, it's a great kind of slasher. Oh, it's not really a slasher. Well, can it's I just a, tell people strap in for this one? This is a fucking corker. It's a corker of a film. It's about these. Uh, a bunch of homicidal children who take <laughs> refuse in a, like a winter chalet after a bus crash kills their chaperone, their chaperones for, uh, from a nearby like psychiatric hospital, and uh, the kind of the family staying at the chalet welcome the children until they start bumping them off one by one, <laughs> and uh, the kids are great. The kids are like Leaf Garrett is kind of one of the main kids. Uh, his his actual real life sister Dawn Lynn, uh, Gail. Sp- uh, I think her name's Smale. I can't pronounce Gail Smale. Gail Smale. <laughs> she plays like the nun, and like you kind of, she looks adult, but she's actually just one of the kids. <laughs> but they, you know, they seem to think that she's like a the nun, kind of looking after them. Because and there's uh, uh, Tia Thompson and uh, uh, Thierry Turner is the the other kids, and the adults they they even though the kids tell them that the bus crashed and everyone all all their parents and stuff all died. They never mention at all, like, oh, maybe we should go out and have a look <laughs> and see if everyone's okay. Like, do these kids really know just that they're their dead? Word for it. They're yeah. just like, oh, it's cold outside. We're quite happy staying inside. <laughs> um, the adults are played by uh, uh, Gene Evans, who is, his character's name is Papa Doc, which is it's great. <laughs> He's a great character name. Uh, Sorrel Brook, uh, Taylor Lochner, Joan McCall, John Durrant, and uh, Leif Garrett's real-life mother, 
uh, actress Carolyn Stella. And it's weird because she is the one who has the kind of nude scenes and stuff in the film. And you're like, is it, has she got, did she, I think this, these were the kids' first films. It's like she had the, she got the role and then she's like, yeah, bring the kids in and don't worry about me constantly having like my tits out. And or stuff did the kids this. get the role and she thought, and then this is the perfect like, opportunity. If you want, want Leaf, you got to have me. Uh, but they're, they're, I mean, they're really great. There's a there's there's a great scene where uh, Carolyn Stella she's the she's the much much younger wife of uh, Gene Evans, and she's constantly trying to have sex with all the other men, including including I think John Duran, who's like a mentally handicapped. <laughs> He's like the caretaker guy that's you know mistreated by everyone. <laughs> he doesn't understand what she's doing or why she's doing it. He thinks it's a game, and it is one of the like. It's politically incorrect. It's politically incorrect. It's it's a very kind of uncomfortable <laughs> watch. There's some stuff here that's and then and then you kind of think like he kind of is friendly with the kids, and you think oh he's gonna you know he's gonna survive. He's the first one to to cop it. <laughs> Um, when you mentioned this to me earlier, um, late last week when we were talking about what we're going to cover, you said the title and it all came flooding back to me because I remember watching this when I was very young. Yeah. But then I'm thinking about it and I don't remember much from it at all. But I do remember the images. Like there's an image of a guy packed into snow. Yeah, that's the, <laughs> they get one of the guys who I believe they um, he gets killed when Leif Garrett, like Leif Garrett, who's a like a has some kind of Cross, he's like he, he cross dresses and does all sorts of kind of stuff in it, which I guess at the time that I don't know if they're trying to draw parallels between cross dressing and and uh, serial killers and so oh, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, and serial killers or what like it's today would be um, that was a thing a, back then, like that they did draw that they, comparison, yeah. yeah. But he um, he he chops. Uh, I think it's Sorel Brook. Um, he's showing him how to cut wood. And chop wood, and when uh, he's kind of setting up, Sorrel Wood's setting up a block. Leaf Garrett uh, chops him in the back of the neck with the axe, and then they bury him in the, like the snow and yeah. make him into a snowman. Yeah. And they like dance around him and do all. See, sorts I remember of the cool images, stuff. but I don't remember the movie. And it was the same thing with remember Celia, the movie with Rebecca Smart. It was yeah. the same thing. Like someone mentioned it, it all came flooding back, and I had to watch it again to really catch up. The so rabbits, that the is bloody rabbits. That is on my list. This one is on my list. It's definitely. It's. I think it's. It's just relatively recently had a had a pretty good Blu-ray release. Yeah, cool. Definitely worth checking out. Awesome. And uh, someone else that's worth checking out. <laughs> hey guys, it's Adam here from Adam's Just Seen and Triple M with another good Movie Monday recommendation. This film that I'm coming at you with this week is an interesting one. A Simple Plan. Now, this is an excellent thriller. Extremely slow burn, atmospheric slowly stacking things up until they come to a point where you're like, wow, the cumulative effect of this film has just floored me. Surprisingly, this comes from director Sam Raimi. Now, I worship at the altar of Raimi, and why wouldn't I? I mean, the dude gave us Evil Dead. He gave me Spider-Man 1, 2, and yeah, and 3. I mean, I skipped school to see Spider-Man 1 three times the day that it came out, so I have a lot of love in my heart for Raimi as a director. And I've always thought that he's got this like goofy, inventive, fun thing going on. And none of that is present here in A Simple Plan. This adaptation of Scott B. Smith's novel, uh, this incredible kind of pressure cooker concept of what happens when these two brothers that have got you know a very small life 
stumble upon $4.4 million in a plane crash and everyone's dead. Sounds like a precursor to No Country for Old Men, and look, it kind of is, um, but without Anton Chigurh terrifyingly pursuing anyone, this is more about the bad choices that you make once you go down this path. Um, incredible performances here. Bill Paxton, as the level-headed older brother Hank, is doing really understated work, but I think that he is just, you know, a fantastic anchor for this entire film. Billy Bob Thornton here is a revelation. I mean, him as Jacob, his simple-witted brother, is so affecting. Um, you know, you feel for this guy so bad, and it's incredible to see Billy Bob's range here. I mean, this guy is such a dweeb that you can't believe in real life around the time of this production you know he was married to angelina jolie he was a sexy dude you know uh, and that would go on to play bad santa rounding out the cast kind of is bridget fonda not quite as a lady macbeth but more as like a moral sounding board because these characters keep questioning what should they do next and because scott's uh, b smith's script here is so clever they just keep slightly making the wrong choices and it compounds and it compounds to a point where the tension, you can't even believe it. And as I said before, you know, it's incredible that this is a film by Raimi because it just doesn't have any of those stylistic flourishes. So you might be waiting for these big, you know, explosive payoff moments, but subtle, understated and builds up and honestly, I think is one of probably, you know, the best thrillers of the 90s and probably one that you haven't discovered. So that's why you're listening. So yeah, uh, a simple plan, five stars, check it out. And thank you, Adam. You know where to find him. He tells you. Triple M. That's where he is. He's always just hang- he's hanging out at Triple M. He's also the uh, chairman of the Australian Film Critics Association, and we feel pretty lucky to have him here on Good Movie Monday. All right. And the sound of Adam signifies one thing. End of the show. End of the show. Yes. <laughs> so many chiller thrillers that we could have spoken of. I want to go through a few that were on my original list. The Pledge. Do you remember that one? With um, Jack Nicholson, directed by Sean Penn. Yes. Benicio Del Toro. Yeah, that's a yeah, great yeah. one. Uh, Fargo, of course. Before and After. I know you like that one. Yes. Frozen Ground is excellent. Cold Pursuit's good. Hold the Dark is a new one that's on uh, Netflix, I think. Dark Was the Night is a really cool horror film that's all set in the snow. Uh, Mystery River, Misery, The Edge, The Captive. So many. I like. What's that one with... Um... Oh, now, now I've gone completely blank. <laughs> is that woman with that thing... And the they thing. Do that, <laughs> There's uh, another one. The thing was, yeah, the thing was one that I was tempted to do, but I was like, who hasn't seen the thing? Yeah, that's right. That's a bit redundant. Um, no, Kate with Kate Beckinsale. Oh, Whiteout. Whiteout. Yeah, yeah, I really liked that one. Yeah, that was pretty good too. A lot of a lot of kind of people left, like <laughs> those lines connecting buildings <laughs> and stuff, and walking out and finding severed hands and stuff. Lots of severed hands, I think, in that film. Do you still have popcorn in your head? <laughs> the people and places we'd like to thank every week, of course, are Four Pillars Gin Umbrella Entertainment, Eagle Entertainment, The Astor Theatre, and Luna Drive In. And we have giveaways from each of them on our website currently, so go and check that out. GoodMovieMonday.com. Of course, thanks to Jarrett, Gamo, Adam, Chloe, Joe, Chad, and James. And also thanks to Tia, who comes from the Sunflower Agency. She assists us behind the scenes with social media. And a big shout out to SK Dale, the director of Till Death. Thanks for the chat, mate. And um, next week on the show, Ben, we have Courtney Gaines from the Burbs. From the Burbs. Children of the Corn, Malachi. Little Ginge. Little Ginge, that's what I I called him ever since I was a kid. I may have called him the Ginger Beetlejuice. (laughs) 
How he takes to that, you'll have to <laughs> listen and find out. <laughs> he has a new film coming out called Queen Bees, and we're going to talk about that, but mostly we're going to talk about his other stuff, which is very fun. Anyway, Ben, you've got something for me. I do. I do. This is uh, I Was Made for Dancing by the star of Devil Times 5, Leaf Garrett. <laughs> Thanks for listening, everybody. Have a great week. <laughs>